So this morning we are continuing our series, Redevoted. A series for us as we move through the season of Lent. And like we talked about last week, walking alongside John, the Apostle John, and the letters and the messages that he wrote to the churches in Ephesus, or sorry, the churches in Asia Minor. And if you remember last week, we talked about the message that he gave to, to Ephesus, this west coast city in what is today modern Turkey, and how Jesus described himself as the one who stands or who was standing in the middle of the lampstands, in the middle of these churches. He knew exactly what was going on. And he said to this church, he said, you have forgotten your first love, so remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at the beginning. Return to your first love. Well, this morning we are hearing uh, his message to the church in Smyrna, another uh, city in modern-day Turkey. And <clears throat> I have to say, as I've been studying his message to Smyrna, I wish it were different. The things that he says to the church there, I wish he said something different, honestly. Here's a church that is commended for the difficulty they are going through. Here's a church that is being honored because they are uh, suffering persecution. In, in Greek, it's literally tribulation. They're suffering a uh, tribu- tribulation, difficulty. But also, too, they are poor. And as we talked about last week, it's probably because of the, the, um, the ways that they were persecuted for being Christians. Their shops, their businesses were probably uh, discriminated against. And in all of this, Jesus says, do not be afraid of suffering or that which you're about to suffer. He says, stay faithful even unto death. And that's hard for me. I mean, it's good. It's good news. But it's honestly, when I think about it, I think I wish Jesus said, I know the suffering you're going through. Don't worry, I'm going to fix it. I wish Jesus said, I know that you are poor. I'm going to fill your bank account. But rather he says, he says, do not be afraid of that which you're about to suffer. And be faithful, even if it means to the point of death. And I know some of you, are going through difficult things right now. All of us have been through difficult things in our lives. And it's hard to make sense of it at times, to reconcile this good God that we worship and this broken world that we live in and the pain and the suffering that comes along with it. Especially as we'll read about here in a minute, the church in Smyrna, the suffering they faced, not because they had done something wrong, but rather because they were faithfully following Jesus. They refused to renounce him. They refused to compromise. And so the culture around them turned on them. So we asked this question, what is, how do pain and suffering, how do they fit in terms of becoming a disciple or growing as a disciple of Jesus? How do these things fit together? If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Or if you'd like, I also there's an insert in your bulletin if you want to read along there. Before we begin reading, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us in his word. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we pray for your help as we hear your word. Lord, help us to understand it rightly. Help us to live it faithfully. Lord, I pray for your work as we hear these words and the thoughts that you will bring to people's minds the situations that 
many of us are going through, God, I pray that you would be at work, that you would help us to hear your word. In Jesus' powerful name we ask this. Amen. So let's read together. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by, at all by the second death. So as we've been talking, one of the ways to understand these messages, to understand what's happening in the city at the time, what's happening around the church that this message comes to, so one of the things is that if you were to read the history books about Smyrna, you'd wonder what the big deal is. I mean, the, the, the city of Smyrna was uh, supposedly a beautiful place. They called themselves the first city of Asia Minor, the number one city, even above Ephesus, one of their rivals. They called themselves the crown of Asia Minor. And it's interesting, I mean, they even had a coin that was minted that said Smyrna, number one in size and beauty. They had a group of buildings, uh, probably some of them were temples, but architecture. It was called the crown of Smyrna. There's this theme of crowns and this theme of being first. It's interesting, uh, on Friday we met with, with Dale and Sarah. Dale is the, um, for Merge Ministries, he's one of the directors, and he's meeting with the Nelson Church today to talk with them about their trip to Ecuador and do some training with them. And he was talking about BC and about how beautiful it is. And we started telling stories that I think there's a sign on your way from Alberta that says, BC, the most beautiful place on earth. A little presumptuous, even for Canadians, right? <laughs> And they were, someone was visiting, I don't remember who it was, but Jeff uh, Strong was talking about, someone was visiting and he said that, you know, when they first drove and they saw that sign, they thought, well, that's a little bit, you know, a little presumptuous there. But then they started driving through British Columbia and they said, you know, it, it, it actually might be true. This is a beautiful place. I think this same sort of thing happened in Smyrna. We're the number one city. We are the crown of Asia Minor. But also, too, uh, Smyrna had this history of raising from the dead, so to speak. In uh, 580 B.C., the city was destroyed. Then in uh, 290, it was rebuilt again. So this city that had been destroyed for almost 300 years before it was rebuilt. So even they had sort of a story of being uh, coming back to life. So this is the story of the city, some of the things that were happening. But as beautiful as it was in the history books, for Christians of the first century, it was not a beautiful place. There was persecution everywhere. There was persecution from the city because it was a huge uh, city in terms of its support of, of worshiping the emperor as a god. It's interesting, in, in 195 B.C., before it was even popular to worship Rome, 
Smyrna built a temple to the god Roma, uh, worshiping all things Roman. But then in 23 AD, Augustus Caesar, there was a temple built for him. In 25 AD, they, they won the rights over other uh, cities. I think Ephesus was one of them to build a temple to Tiberius Caesar. And they were so excited. Smyrna was so excited about this honor that not only did they build a temple for Tiberius, they built one for his wife Lydia, and they built a temple for the Senate. In the years to come, Smyrna would become the center of the Roman cult, the emperor worship. So you can understand how important it was for this city, for everybody to get in line and worship the emperor. We talked about this some last week, and some of you weren't here. We talked about how the Roman cult was a way of consolidating power for the emperors. So at very least, it was a strategic move, because you demand people who can say, who can say anything against you if they believe or are supposed to believe that you're a god. But not only that, but it also played to their insecurities and their paranoia and their arrogance that they would say that they were gods. But the cities themselves, they were happy to play along. Cities like Smyrna, they would build temples to the emperor, they would give him some worship, and in return he would give them favors. Cuts in taxes, special benefits. So cities had this vested interest to play along, and it became part of the control structure of the whole Roman Empire. So you can imagine what it's like as a Christian. All this pressure, state-sanctioned persecution, your neighbors all saying you need to do this or we, or we, don't, we don't go to your shop. All this pressure to conform. And yet you have Christians saying, I cannot. I will not. There is only one Lord and God and his name is Jesus. So this is part of the situation that they are facing. But not only that, not only was the persecution from the secular world around them or the, the Roman religion, but also there was persecution from the Jewish community as well. Read it here, it talks about us false Jews and that they were a synagogue of Satan. You see, in the ancient world, in the first century, uh, Judaism had special privilege in the Roman Empire. They weren't required to be a part of the military and they weren't required to worship the emperor. They were able to worship the God of, of the Old Testament. They were able to worship Yahweh. So they had this special privilege and they were very careful of it. And so they weren't too keen on these Christians who they thought were heretics coming in and potentially messing things up, meddling with their special status. So not only did they have this, this political aspect of not wanting the Christians to be associated with them, because you can imagine to the Roman world who, you know, the small religion of Judaism, they don't really understand it. And then they see these little groups coming off, one of them being a Christian group. They followed this, this man named Yeshua from Nazareth. Um, they came to be a Messiah. But to them, it's all different groups of Judaism. And the Jews are quick to say, no, these guys are not with us. In fact, we think they're heretics. And we don't want to have them influencing your decisions about us in any way. So not only are there political reasons, but there's also religious reasons. I mean, you can imagine what it would be like for a Jewish, a Jewish person who for centuries had been waiting for the Mashiach to have these Christians claim that it was a rebel from this backwater town of Nazareth. See, in Judaism, 
the Messiah is this great political and military leader who's going to come and, and rule the world. And yet the Christians claim that he is the Messiah, and yet he died you know, the disgraceful death on a cross. In the Jewish world, that just doesn't go. It just doesn't fit. And so these Christians are viewed as heretics. But not only that, even more than that, they claim that this Jesus is God, that he is divine. Even Jesus in his own ministry said, ego eimi, or in Greek, or in, or in um, Hebrew, we say that um, ani ani hu, I, I am, which is the way that God describes himself to Moses. So you have Jesus claiming to be God and those who follow him claiming that Jesus is God. And to Israel that says, that is fashioned, is built around the Shema, that the Lord our God, here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And to say that Jesus is God also, it was heresy. So these, this synagogue, at least the one in Smyrna, they were no friend of the Christians. And not only that, as you have these Christians just throwing the door open to God. Everybody was welcome in, regardless of what you ate, regardless of the days you celebrated or didn't celebrate. You had access to God through this Messiah. You can just imagine how it just got under the skin of the Jewish community there. So you have this political reasons for their special status, but you also have religious reasons, which I think are probably way more important to the community, to the Jewish community in Smyrna. And so you have the situation where they probably begin turning in Christians. You see, it's kind of a, 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 a win-win for them. First of all, they get rid of heretics. If you turn in a Christian because they won't worship the emperor, that's just one less Christian to worry about. But not only that, if you turn them in, you actually get the benefit of proving your loyalty to the empire. Proving your loyalty. So not only that, will they probably enable you to keep your special privilege of not having to worship the emperor. So there's this two-sided aspect to it. So there's, there's understandable, um, it's understandable why the Jewish community there would turn in Christians. Not that it's good, not that it's right. So here in scripture, it was, they were false. But you can understand what's happening. And it's into this situation that Jesus begins to speak to the church in Smyrna. It's into this persecution, this beautiful city that had all of these idols and these other religions. It's into this situation that Jesus begins to speak. And he says, I, I am the first and the last, the one who was dead and has been raised to life. These are powerful words in Smyrna. Like we already talked about, this is Christ, the one who is first and last to a city that thought that they were first. Jesus is the one who is dead and been risen to life to a city that thought that they had been risen to life in 288 or 290 BC. But I think Jesus is doing more than just making a clever uh, connection for the church in Smyrna. I think he's actually saying something way more important. When he says, I am the first and last, one of the key points in Scripture where, that, where it said is when Yahweh, the Lord God, says this through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 41, he says, I am the first and the last. I, I am he. I am God. And in the same way, in Isaiah 44, he says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God but me. You can imagine how this begins to play out in a place like Smyrna. Where Jesus says, I am the first and the last, and people remembering Isaiah and say, I, I am he. 
how that would get under the skin of the Jewish community there. Because they, they knew one thing for certain, Jesus was not he. He was not the Lord God. And yet Jesus is saying, I am. Not only that, but it, they would remember Isaiah 44 where it says, I, I am he, there are no other gods but me. You can imagine how that would get under the skin of the Romans, those who worship the emperor. Not only is, in seeing the Roman Empire, it's kind of like, well, if you ever say you're a god and you're a god, let's not argue, let's just say they're all gods. And yet here are these Christians saying, no, there is one God, the Lord God. There are no other gods but him. So this is powerful stuff that he's saying. Not only that, but he says also too that I, I am the first and the last. And this is a Hebrew way of saying that I am in the beginning and I will be at the end and I am everywhere in between which I think would have been especially comforting for the church in Smyrna. Before there was anything else, Jesus was. And after everything else had been gone away, Jesus would still be. And in the middle, in their persecution, in the things that they were struggling with, in the middle of their tribulation, Jesus is still there. He's still present. And he said, I, I am he, and I was dead, and I've been raised to life. And you can imagine how encouraging that would be to Christians who were facing prison and death because they would not worship the emperor, because they insisted on their, their faith in Jesus. So Jesus says, I know who you are and I know what's happening. I know your thlipsis, your tribulation you're facing. I know your tokion, the poverty that you face. Now this word for thlipsis, we talked some about it last week. That this is not your run-of-the-mill, you know, kind of daily difficulties. This is not the routine stuff you know. This is bone-crushing pressure. I heard one commentator talk about it like, it's like being crushed to death by a large stone. That's what thlipsis gets at. That sort of pressure. And it's the sort of pressure we face as people of, king, of God's kingdom. Stuck in between, as God's kingdom and the way of the world clash, we are caught in the middle. Because we follow Jesus, because we won't go along with the way of the world, we're the ones that caught in the middle. And we struggle with it, the pressure of it, just squeezing in on us. But he also says, I know your poverty, the poverty that you face. But he says, you know what? You are rich. Now this poverty is not like, oh, you know, it's a financial inconvenience. <laughs> this is poverty like begging on the street because you have nothing. He says, I know your poverty. I know that you have nothing. I know that it's been stripped away from you, that you're barely able to eat. Yet I say that you are rich. In Jesus' eyes, they were rich. And this is where it begins to turn our understanding on its head. The title of this sermon is Upside Right. And as I've been reading Smyrna, I've been realizing a few different ways. Jesus takes the appearance of things and shows us the reality behind them. If you remember last week, we talked about how Revelation is this amazing book that not only helps us see the current moment in light of the future reality, that Jesus is coming and he's going to win. It also helps us see the current moment in light of the present reality. Jesus is king and he has already won. It helps us see the reality beyond the appearance of this world and the way things work right now. 
Jesus helps us see that while they thought they were poor, and in, probably in material terms, they were probably poor. And they were persecuted, and it was difficult. And yet he says they are rich. It's interesting. I was thinking about this. There are a lot of churches right now, mainly in North America, that are gathering large groups of people that say, because they teach people that if you give lots of money, probably to the church or to the pastor, then you will be blessed with health and with wealth. And as I read the the message to Smyrna, I don't hear it. We're going to be talking about uh, another church in a couple weeks, about Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea. See, they thought they were rich. They thought they had it all figured out. And yet Jesus says, you are poor, blind, and naked. You see Jesus taking the appearance of things and turning them on their head. People say you're poor, but in Jesus' eyes, you're rich. And to the Laodiceans, you think you've got it all figured out. You think you're all rich, and you are poor. You need help. And so we see Jesus helping us see the reality of things. He comes to this church and he says, I am the first and the last, and I am the one who is dead and has been raised to life. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just turn reality on its head. He begins turning the whole world on its head. Helping us understand persecution and struggle, phlipsis, uh, tribulation, these things, these are not because necessarily because we've done something wrong. Sometimes they're because we are faithfully following Jesus. So he goes on to encourage the church. He says, uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Some of you will be thrown into prison. The devil will throw some of you into prison. That's an interesting point. You know, we have prisons for people. Our system is totally different. People can be in prison for theft, for things. You can spend your whole life in prison. In the Roman Empire, there was three reasons why you went to prison. One, because you were waiting your trial to be executed. Two, because they couldn't figure out like how to control you. Or three, because you were about to be executed. So being in prison was basically a prelude to execution. So these Christians are facing execution. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Like I said earlier, I wish he, well, there's a part of me. I'm slowly beginning to come around and see the wisdom of it. Holy Spirit, please help me. I wish Jesus said, I know the the things you're suffering here, I'm going to fix it for you. I know the poverty that you're facing. Let me fill your bank account. And he says, on the other side of it, in his wisdom, which is greater than mine, I know what you're about to face. Do not be afraid. Go through it faithfully. Reminding us that he is the first and the last. That he is the one who had died and had been risen again. He reminds us that this church in Smyrna, he had nothing against them. All the other churches, are, except for Philadelphia, he has something against them. Some churches he doesn't even have anything good at all to say about. And yet to Smyrna, he doesn't have anything against them. So their suffering, their persecution, is not a failure on their part. If anything, it's their faithfulness to Jesus. They are caught in the middle of, this, of God's kingdom clashing with the way of the world. 
Because they probably could have gotten out of their struggle. They just would have went along. They just would have compromised. I think we'll talk about that some next week. It is a letter to Thyatira. They had teachers who were saying, you know, just do it. Just uh, mechanically go through the motions, but don't actually mean it. And you can still follow Jesus. Many people think that's what the Nicolaitans were talking about. We face that same struggle today. Compromise. Water down our faith a bit. Don't be so vocal about things. Go along with the crowd. It will be easier on us. the, The culture around us doesn't care if we look just like them. There's no persecution in that. It's only when we say, you know what, as I'm reading Scripture, as I'm following Jesus, I can't do that. I don't think we should be doing that. That's when you start getting hackles up. That's when people start caring. But not only that, but there's also an unseen reality here too. One that in our modern age is very unfashionable to talk about is the devil. Jesus says the devil will throw some of you into prison. And I don't know if that means the devil literally or means the devil behind the people who will do it. I see both happening in the world around us. principalities and powers that are behind the evil in our world, behind whole governments and leaders manipulating them to do evil, to kill and destroy. The devil hates our defiant faith. That faith that we insist on to keep following Jesus even when it's difficult, the devil hates that. Not because of us necessarily, but because we are the ones whom Jesus loves. It's this problem with the Lord that causes him to take it out on us. So Jesus says that you will be thrown into prison. He says, in order that you will be um, perazzo or, or tested. It's interesting because in some parts of Scripture, this word means tempted, like, the, like Satan will be tempting them, trying to undermine their faith, trying to get them to renounce Jesus. But in some passages of Scriptures, it talks about God using this to test people, to improve them to strengthen their faith, to use difficulty, not to to get them to quit, but to strengthen them. I was thinking of Corinthians where Paul says, you will not be giving anything more than you can handle. Don't let these things tear down your faith. Do not be afraid. Be faithful even unto death. God is using this, this struggle that you're facing, church, to build up your strength. Many of us have faced difficult things in our lives. We can remember how it strips away all the things that we thought were important. All the stuff that were distracting us, all of our little false idols that we had set up, they just get swept to the ground. And we have this freedom, this urgency to return to Jesus, to come back to him, to follow him. So as I hear Jesus speaking to this church in Smyrna, he's not saying that somehow they have missed God's blessing, but actually that he was strengthening their faith through it. We see God turning the world upside down, turning our understanding of reality upside right. And he says to them, do not be afraid and be faithful even to the point of death. This is powerful stuff. 
I know as Christians we talk about this, but in the rest of the world, death is the final defeat. And yet for us as Christians, death is the ultimate victory. If we have run the race well, death is not the end, it is the victory. He talks about if you follow him faithfully, if you stay faithful even unto death, you will receive the crown of life. Which is sort of ironic in a city that thought they were the crown of Asia. We talked about buildings being the crown of Smyrna, and yet here's Jesus saying, it's actually in death that you receive the crown of life. And he says that you will do this to those who do not, or to those who overcome, you will not be affected by the second death. Jesus is encouraging this church that is facing execution or persecution that will often end in execution, encouraging them to be faithful to the end because they will receive the crown of life and they will not die the second death. It means they will live forever. Those who die without Christ, Jesus talks about later in Revelation, they will die the second death. Not only will they die physically, but ultimately. Jesus says that you have hope because of what he's done, because of the cross and the resurrection. We have hope in him. Hope in life that goes on for better than actually gets better when we die. Those are powerful words for us. They've become way more weighty in the last few months for me. So we hear Jesus speaking to this church in Smyrna, reminding them that he is the first and the last. He knows exactly what's happening where they live. Despite how beautiful the city is, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the persecution and the poverty that they face. And he's taking the appearance of things and turning them on their head. Remember, Revelation helps us see the current moment in light of the future reality. Jesus is coming and he's going to win. But it also helps us see the current moment in light of the present reality. Jesus is king and he has already won. This morning, this passage helps us see our upside-down view of the world. Jesus helps us turn it upside right. Amen.